Here we are once again today in the Gospel of Mark. And perhaps you remember from our previous study, last time we talked about Jesus as the compassionate shepherd. And there in the 34th verse, you remember we um, just sort of camped out there. Jesus, when he came and saw a great multitude, was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And now we pick up in the very next verse, verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, uh, this is a deserted place and so forth. So we pick up the story right, you know, right in the, in the middle of this. So Jesus, he, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. And the first thing he does is he teaches them. He begins to teach them. So the first priority for Jesus is their spiritual need. And so he brings them that spiritual food, God's word. But then he's not um, insensitive to the fact that they have a physical need as well. And so that's as the story goes on, that's what we see, that he, having met their spiritual need, now he goes on to meet their physical need through Uh, the feeding of this multitude with the loaves and fish that we just read about together. So this story, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, this story is in all four gospels. And it's interesting because um, there's another story about feeding here in uh, chapter eight. It's the feeding of the 4,000. And only two of the gospels mention the second feeding of the multitude, the 4,000. But, but this feeding of the 5,000, all four gospels mention this. And John is the one who actually gives us the most detail about it. So let me just read a few verses from John chapter six and um, just kind of get even a fuller picture of what's happening. So Jesus seeing a great multitude coming toward him said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread, that's like a half year's wages, uh, is not sufficient for them that everyone of them may eat a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. So we're gonna come back to this later because like I said, John gives us much more detail and it's set, this is really the backdrop for some other very important things that Jesus said. So we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But before we do that, let's just talk uh, for a minute about this feeding of the 5,000. So like I said, Jesus here now is ministering to their physical needs. You know, there's always been, I don't know about always, but you know, for a long time, and even today, there's kind of a debate that goes on, um, uh, even among Christians, about ministering to people spiritually versus ministering to them physically. And, you know, uh, some people say, well, we should just 
you know, take care of people's spiritual needs and we don't worry, we don't need to worry about that other stuff. That's not, that's not our problem or responsibility. Some people say, no, you know, we, we've got to care for people. We've got to provide for the poor. We've got to be engaged in justice kinds of things and so forth. And, you know, what happens is in people's minds, it, uh, it, it always is reduced to like an either or. It's one or the other. But in the Bible, it's, it's both and. It's not either or. In the Bible, it's, it's both. Uh, Jesus ministered to people physically as well. And so we, as his people, the church, that's part of the, the ministry of the gospel, that we help people uh, who are in need, uh, physical need, material need, those, those kinds of things. And so we, we should not create that uh, dichotomy that doesn't really exist in the scriptures. We should just remember that those, those two things work together. But, but obviously, the, the, the really important thing that sometimes does get forgotten and, and neglected is the spiritual need. And so we can never forget that man's deepest needs are spiritual. They're, uh, they're, they're primary and the, the physical needs are real and so forth, but they're secondary in comparison to the spiritual. So we should never forego the gospel or the, the giving of the gospel to just do social kinds of things. And, and you know, some people would say that. Even, even some, you know, people who see themselves as Christians, they would say, well, you know, we don't want to impose the gospel on people. Let's just take care of their physical needs. And through doing that, we're gonna, we'll show people what it is to be a Christian. Well, we do wanna show people what it is to be a Christian, but we can never forego the communication of the gospel because it's, it's through the preaching of the gospel that people are saved and that's the, the primary need. So just, just a quick side note there. But secondly, um, this feeding of the 5,000 now, this is obviously a miracle. Now, of course, we're getting used to miracles because we're seeing them as we go through Mark's gospel. And, but, but this is an extraordinary miracle because this is a miracle of creation. So, you know, Jesus is taking five barley loaves and two fish and he's feeding thousands of people. So there has to be a creative thing happening here in order for all of those people to eat from those things. So again, this would be one of those things, everybody knew this then, and, and everybody knows this as well today, everybody who's a believer, God is the one who creates. Nobody else can create. But of course, Jesus was doing that, which is another just sort of a, incidental reminder to us of, of who Jesus is. But this brings us just for a moment to the topic of miracles. Did miracles really happen? Now, you know, there are some people today, and this is not anything new. Um, back in the 18th century, uh, the famous philosopher David Hume uh, said that, you know, <clears throat> He just completely dismissed the, the gospels and dismissed belief in God because he just simply said miracles do not happen, period. 
because the majority of people that he was familiar with had never seen a miracle, therefore he concluded miracles never did happen. So when the Bible talks about miracles, uh, this is all just part of the mythology and therefore we can dismiss the Bible and not really think any more about it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, although he wasn't totally ready to dismiss the idea of God, he absolutely uh, dismissed the idea of miracles. And Thomas Jefferson, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but Thomas Jefferson came up with his own version of the New Testament. And what he basically did is he went through and he cut out all of the miracles. And he said, okay, this was, this was all the mythology that was uh, put in that stumbles everybody. So let's get rid of this. And then let's just get the teaching of Jesus out there. So they did not believe. And like I said, uh, there are people today who do not believe that these miraculous things took place. But why not? If, if there is a God, and if God is going to intervene in the world, then miracles don't, I don't know what the big stumbling block is. It seems to me quite reasonable that if you believe in God, then you would expect that there would be miracles. You know, Pastor Chuck used to say, if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you can believe the rest of it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You believe that, then nothing else is a problem. God brings the world into existence. So, yes, the miracles did happen. And they still happen today. And we cannot forget that. Now, this week I was just incidentally listening to um, some of the podcasts that I listened to. And... Um, a podcast that I really like by the guys over at Biola by Scott Ray and um, my good friend Sean McDowell. They, they did a podcast with a guy named Craig Keener. Craig Keener is uh, he's one of the most brilliant thinkers uh, theologically today. Just amazing guy. And uh, was an atheist, came to faith in Christ and then went on to become a, a scholar and he was writing a commentary on the book of Acts. And he was looking at the, the, the miracles in, in the gospels and in the book of Acts. And, you know, having come from the atheistic world and all of that. So he's going he, he's gonna to present some evidence for the miraculous. So he tells the story how he's writing the commentary on the book of Acts. And he's... Um, footnoting one of the portions of Acts that, you know, speak of the miraculous. And he goes on to say that his footnote turned into a 1,000 page volume on miracles. And so it's actually two volumes on miracles now. But it, it started with a footnote. Because once he started to really delve into the evidence for the miraculous, he couldn't stop writing. And so he tells a few stories and, and this is the point that I want to make is that not only did miracles happen in the New Testament times, miracles have happened all the way through the history of the church and they still happen today. And he talked about these uh, studies that have been done and there was, there was one study that was done among uh, Pentecostal and charismatic Christians from 10 different countries around the world and he said there were 200 million reported miracles. 
Now he agrees that of course not every reported miracle is a miracle, but 200 million reports, there certainly are, are going to be things there that um, are, are valid. And, um, and then he, he goes on and he just, he's done all of this research and he tells some pretty fascinating stories. I don't know that I'll ever read the 1,000 pages on the subject, but it's really kind of piqued my interest. So um, maybe I'll read a few anyway. But, he, but one of the stories that he told that was interesting to me and kind of just a, a reminder to us that miracles happen today. Um, he told the story of, I, I think it was in India, and there was a, uh, a particular region where there were some, some churches in the region, and all of the churches just kind of bickered and argued and, and basically just fought with each other. That's all, that's all they did. That was kind of the reputation in the region for the church. It was kind of useless. Well, somehow they figured out that this was probably not really helping the cause of the kingdom. And so they got together and they all repented and they asked the Lord to you know, forgive them and to help them to reach their region, whatever uh, part of the country it was. And so the Lord put on their heart to go out and to begin to just share the gospel in the streets. And they talked about how uh, God w accompanied them with the miraculous. And one story that, uh, that Craig told was so fascinating. He said there was a man who was 80 years old. He had been a, a very anti-God person his entire life. And he was publicly, when they would go out and, and share the gospel, he would be out there to oppose them. And he he was publicly out there to oppose him. And for his whole life, his right hand was withered. So he couldn't lift his, his right hand. And in his tirade against God, he raised his hand and he was shouting that there was no God, that no one should believe in a God. And suddenly he stopped and looked at his hand <laughs> and thought, oh, I must be wrong. So anyway, this guy, this guy became a Christian. And what happened is literally tens of thousands of people in that region came to Christ through the efforts that began with that particular miraculous thing at that moment. So that's something fairly recently that happened. So I've, I've reminded us of this as we've been going through, but I want to remind us again. We, we have to be careful not to just relegate the miraculous to the past or to relegate it to a different part of the world. Although this is much more common in different places than it is in the West and particularly here among us, yet we cannot discount the fact that God still does miracles today. And there are many, many miraculous stories that uh, maybe, maybe some of you even know some yourself, and I've, I've heard plenty myself. So that was a miracle, and yes, miracles still happen today. Now, another thing about the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, as I said, in chapter eight, there's then the second feeding. There's the feeding of the 4,000. We'll get to that and probably just touch on it lightly when we get to the eighth chapter. But... 
as you look at the two different feedings, so one is 5,000, and the idea is 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, so several more probably. Um, the feeding of the 4,000, in, in the feeding of the 5,000, there's 12 baskets of fragments that remain. And Jesus says, you know, get them and keep them. And then in the feeding of the 4,000, there's seven baskets of fragments that remain. And some, some have seen in this that you, what you have here is a picture of the Lord's sufficiency for both Israel and for the nations. So the significance with the 5,000 is that 12 baskets full are um, gathered up. And of course, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so that, that Jesus, that Christ, that he was sufficient for Israel, that everything they could ever need, that, that he would be the one to provide that for them. But then with the 4,000, some see the 4,000 that the, the audience was maybe more of a Gentile audience. And then there's seven baskets full of fragments. And the seven would be, you know, the number seven is the number of completion. So again, the idea there, if that, if that group was predominantly Gentile, that Christ is also sufficient for the nations as seven is the number of completion, that he will uh, be able to bless and provide for all that the nations need. So that's just, you know, kind of... Um, something that is obviously a bit read into the text, but it certainly is, or possibly is, um, something that's legitimate. But one more thing before we move on over to John's gospel today. Did you notice, as you read on through the story, so Jesus dismisses the disciples. They get in a boat and they head back uh, to the other side of the lake, but Jesus doesn't go. And, and what he does is he waits until the evening. He goes off to pray, actually. And in the wee hours of the morning, as they're straining at rowing because of a strong headwind, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Now, that, that is always, to me, so amazing to think. And I have to tell you, every time I go to the Sea of Galilee, and especially early in the morning on the Sea of Galilee, you know, there's, it's just something when you're there and you wake up and you see the sun just beginning to rise over the, the eastern hills there and you look out at that beautiful lake. And as I was doing that a few years ago, I just suddenly had this thought like, wow, this is, this is so amazing. This body of water there's, there's nothing like this in the whole world because it was on this body of water that two human beings actually walked. They walked on the water. One of them, of course, was the son of God, but the other one was a feeble human being named Peter. But remember, Peter walked on the water as well. But Jesus comes to them. He's walking on the water. Now, uh, you know, liberal scholars, uh, 
you know, people who reject the miraculous of the Bible, they come up with all kinds of theories about what was happening. Actually, the lake was frozen and Jesus was just walking, you know, it was frozen. It doesn't explain what was happening with the guys trying to row through, you know, it doesn't say they were rowing through the ice. Uh, I highly doubt that the Sea of Galilee has ever frozen in the history of the world. But, you know, they come up with these, just these lame kinds of things to, uh, again, to just do away with the obvious. Jesus is walking on the water, and this freaks these guys out, just like it freaked them out when he calmed the storm. Now it's happening again. But here's, here's the thing that I, I want you to see, and here's the thing that the Lord wants us to see. So look at... Um, Let's pick it up in verse 49, or we'll just back up a little bit. Pick it up in verse 48. Uh, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, so this would be just before the dawn, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they... All saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now listen, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Wow. So what this is telling us is that Jesus did this to wake them up. Because apparently by this time, they were starting to get used to this stuff. They were starting to lose the awe of the miraculous. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves and they're like, hey, that's cool, you know. But they, they had lost the awe. So this kind of snaps them out of it. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. It's like, no, no, don't, don't think this is normal. Uh, don't forget that there's something extraordinary going on here. Don't let your hearts get hardened. And that was his purpose for coming to them, walking on the water. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as I said, all record the event of the feeding of the 5,000. But as you read through them, their, their accounts are all very, very brief. It's through John that we come to realize that this miracle was the backdrop. This miracle was the backdrop for some of the most profound teaching of Jesus about himself. So I want you to turn in your Bible over to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at the story once again, but we're going to look at some of the details that are missed with the other writers. Now, now remember, you know, some people would say that, you know, the Bible is contradictory. And here's the contradiction right here. One guy says that this happened with the feeding of the 5,000. Another guy says that this happened. Uh, there's no contradictions. There, the... The, the synoptics, as they're commonly called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their purpose is to give us, you know, they're, they're going through, and th- their purpose is just to give us, you know, kind of the overview in some sense of what happened, kind of the big picture. This is what happened. Jesus fed 5,000 with these, uh, you know, just 
fish, fish and bread. But it was left to John to give more details about it. So we see that we learn uh, from John, as we already read, that it was a boy who had the five loaves and the two fish that were the initial um, substance for the miracle to take place. But as we look at the Gospel of John, there are three things that I want to just point out to us here in the sixth chapter that I, I think are very helpful for us as we just look at the, the big picture of, of what's happening here. So let me go back to the verses that we read earlier. In John chapter six, Jesus lifted up his eyes in verse five and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. And here's the thing that I want us to hear. For he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus is really kind of setting this whole thing up. He says, where can we get bread for them? And the response is, um, you know, Lord, we, we can't. That's basically what, what Philip says. But, but Jesus says this to test him, it says. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. And I want us to just grab hold of this today. Jesus knew what he was going to do. And here what we have is we have a deficit. They are faced with this deficit. Here, here is this multitude of people and they're weary and they're hungry and there's no place or there's not enough money to feed them, what are we going to do? So there, there's a deficit. And Jesus points out the deficit. He lets Philip see the deficit. But then the important words are, but he himself knew what he would do. And this is something that we need to remember. You see, whenever there's a need, a deficit, a problem that arises, did you know that the Lord already knows about it? And did you also know that he already knows what he's going to do? I mean, this is one of those things that if you really let it sink into your heart, this is so comforting. It is such a, a great truth. It's like, you know what? Yeah, that's a problem. But guess what? Jesus already knows what to do. And he does. And, and we need to know that today. And remember, he still does stuff today. He still does miraculous things. And, you know, I have to tell you this from the standpoint of pastoring this church and overseeing this ministry. You know, there are many deficits. And at times I look and I think, wow, Lord. And if for a moment, I forget that the Lord already knows what he's going to do, I can get super stressed out. I can get like, oh, man, what, what, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to fix this? Or what, you know, but then, wait a second. 
the Lord knows what he's going to do. He already knows. So I'm just going to trust him and listen to him and do my best to hear what he's saying and, and respond to that. But know that. You know, we say things like, well, you know, God is in control. Do we really believe that? Is he really in control? Does he really know what he's going to do? Well, he does know what he's going to do. And so Jesus was going to take this deficit and he was going to use it as an opportunity to, pro to provide uh, just beyond anything that they could ask or imagine as the wording is later in the scripture. So he already knows what he's going to do. Now, so let's go on in the story here. So Jesus said to them, you know, to make the people sit down and so forth. And then as uh, John goes on, he tells the whole story, same story, talks about Jesus walking on the water. But then he comes in verse 22 to the following day. So that's what I was saying. This is all the backdrop for these other really important things that are going to transpire. So on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, <coughs> except the one which... Uh, his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but his disciples had gone away alone however other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus and when they found him on the other side of the sea they said to him rabbi when did you come here now listen Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So Jesus kind of bust them. You guys are just looking for another meal. That's really what's going on here. But then he says this, do not labor for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal upon him. So you see, this is the follow-up. This is what's happening now in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. And this word is a word that, again, is a word for us. Do not labor for the food that perishes because this is the tendency or as human beings, this is the tendency to focus on the material to the neglect of the spiritual. And what does Jesus say? It's the food that perishes. And whether it's food that perishes or um, money or um, whether it's, you know, just material objects or whatever the case, the, the truth is it perishes. It will perish. And Jesus says, don't labor for that. Don't spend your energy and time for that. But rather, for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so Jesus is giving us a priority here. He's showing us, this is what you're to labor for. This is what is to be uh, the... Uh, first and the foremost thing in the hearts and the minds of the people of God. That's us today. So yes, we, we have to have food on the table 
We have to work. We have to do those things. Yes, of course we do. God wants us to do those things, actually. But he does not want those things to be the, the thing that drives us. He doesn't want that to be the thing that consumes us. He doesn't want that to be the, the ultimate priority in our lives. He wants us to labor for the food that endures to everlasting life. In other words, he wants us to give ourselves to the things of the spirit. And we have to always remember that because we're tempted so often uh, to get pulled in the direction of the food that perishes, so to speak. We're tempted so often to just get pulled in the direction of the material and focusing all of our attention on that. Jesus says, don't do that. Now, thirdly, as we come down into verse 35, this is where Jesus, as I said earlier, he says some of the most profound things about himself in the aftermath of this miracle. And verse 35 is one of those things that he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So remember, he fed them all with bread. But now he says, I am the bread of life. Don't labor for that bread that, that isn't going to last. Focus on the things of the spirit. Focus on me for I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and those who believe in me will never thirst. This is one of those extraordinary claims of Jesus. You know, seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus takes and he uses this formula, I am, and then he adds something to it. And when he does that, he's identifying himself with the, uh, the God of, of Scripture because it was in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said to the Lord, uh, you know, what's your name? The Lord said, my name is I am. And what do I tell Pharaoh and the children of Israel when I go? Tell them I am has sent you. So Jesus takes that to himself seven times in John's gospel. And here's the first place where it occurs. I am the bread of life. And notice what he says. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is telling us, he's just said, don't labor for the food that perishes. And now he's telling us that he's the one who will fulfill us. He's the one who will satisfy us. He's the one who will satiate us. He's the one who will make our lives full. He's the bread of life. And as, as the as the whole thing unfolds and he keeps having this conversation and it ends up turning into a debate because uh, the religious leaders are there and they're opposed to Jesus. And they even say at one point, they, they even say at one point, basically, you know, your miracle of feeding the 5,000, that was nothing. Moses fed the people in the wilderness for 40 years with bread. So you just got a little miracle. Why should we listen to you? Jesus says, well, actually it wasn't Moses who fed your ancestors. It was my father. <laughs> and he's now sent you the bread from heaven. But he says in, in verse uh, 57, 
And I want to just couple these two verses together, 35 and 57. As the living father sent me, and I live because of my father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. See, this is what Jesus is saying. Those who come to him will never hunger. Those who believe in him will never thirst. And those who feed on him will live. Jesus is saying, I am the one that will bring uh, fulfillment, fullness, contentment, abundance, overflow. I'm the one who will bring that into your life. And so it starts with, he said, whoever believes in me. But then in verse 57, he says, whoever feeds on me. And so as we believed in Jesus, as we put our trust in him, to feed on him means to continue in that relationship with him. And, you know, we talk about the importance of being, being in the Bible. I encourage you to read your Bible, meditate on your Bible. You know, in many ways, that's, that's where you're feeding on him. That's where you're, uh, like the ancient Israelites, you're, you're gathering that daily manna to sustain you. And we find that as we feed on the Lord, as we just continue to live in communion with him, and as we make that a, uh, a primary part of our lives, we find that life, as Jesus would later say, uh, that he, he came to give life and that more abundantly, we find that that is indeed what happens. And so it's those who feed on the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. Those are the people who are fulfilled in life. Those are the people who are satiated. Those are the people who are no longer running from thing to thing to thing, trying to find something that's going to bring me contentment, something that's going to bring me fulfillment. See, this is what Jesus came into the world to bring us. And this is what, as we're in that Christmas season, this is what God intended. Because man, by nature, has a void that, that's what every single person has. We have a void inside of us because we were made for God, made by God and for God. And until we have a connection with God, there's this void and we don't even know sometimes that it's there, but, but just our experience indicates that that is the case. So one other thing that, we see in the passage here that I skipped over, but I want to go back to is found in verses 28 and 29. And we're going to close with this because here's what happens as Jesus is saying all of this stuff. The people said to him, then what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So that's the question. So, so what they're asking, you know, Jesus is telling them laboring for the bread that doesn't perish and all of that. And they're like, okay, what do we do? We, we want to do this. And, you know, this is a question everyone is asking, even if they don't know it. See, every single person is, they're, they're asking this question, even though they, they, don't, they don't realize it. I can't remember who it was who said this, but it was somebody significant. Um, <laughs> they said, every time a man goes 
into the house of a prostitute. He's looking for God. But he doesn't know it. See, that's the thing. He doesn't know that he's looking for God. But he's looking for something. He's looking, he's, he's looking for some kind of fulfillment. He's looking for something to, to satisfy that, that gnawing sense of emptiness inside. And, and that's really the case. And, and these people are, in a sense, they're expressing that same thing. What can we do to do the works of God? And so everyone is asking this question, even if they don't know it, that discontent <coughs> inside of you, that longing for something that can't even be articulated, that is, that is the case so often, that sense of a continued inability to find what you're looking for is all indicative of the soul's deep need for God. See, and the, the crazy thing is, you know, people for the most part, they, they just run from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, trying to find some answer to this dissatisfaction, this deep discontent. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. It's true. And that other world is God's world. And it was Augustine who said this, thou hast created us for thyself and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. So they're asking this question, what do we do to do the works of God? Basically they're asking, how do I find God? How do I know God? How do I please God? and listen to the answer that Jesus gave in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Wow, that's it. That's the work of God. That's the answer to the question. How do I fulfill the void in my heart? How do I find ultimate contentment and, and satisfaction and peace and, and those things. How do I find that? Where do I find it? Jesus said, this is how you find it. And you don't find it by working. You don't find it by working. Now they thought that that's what you did. They're, they're sensing, okay, Jesus is somebody. Okay. Yeah. He's somebody. He's prophet. He's somebody. So, okay. What do we do then? What, what work do we do to, to work the works of God? Jesus said, no, it's not about that. It's about this, that you believe in the one whom he sent. That's how we do the work of God. That's where everything starts. And until we get there, we just continue in that place of laboring for the food that perishes. But once we come and we just do that very thing that he said there, that we believe in him, we put our personal faith and trust in him, that's when we then experience that he is the true bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. And we begin to experience that life. And we begin to live 
entirely new lives of purpose and fulfillment and peace and contentment and trust and faith and and all of those things. And so the feeding of the 5,000 and the opportunity to tell the multitudes, I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Those who come to me will never hunger. Those who believe in me will never thirst. And, and what was true then is absolutely true today. Because that same Jesus who was there at that time around the Sea of Galilee, proclaiming these things, actually it was in the Caperna- uh, synagogue in Capernaum that he said these things. But that same Jesus is alive today. And he's saying the same thing today. I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. Man, so many invitations in scripture from Jesus center around those two things, hungering and thirsting, because those two things describe the human experience, not just physically, but even more significantly, spiritually. And so, the bread that came from heaven. What do we do? Believe in the one that God has sent. So Lord, we pray today, Lord, that we ourselves as your people, that we would find ourselves feeding on that bread from heaven. Lord, that we would not, as we are inclined to do sometimes, that we would not drift away into laboring for the food that perishes. But Lord, that we could keep our focus and our attention set upon you, Lord, and that we would feed on you, as you said, just daily coming to you, daily seeking you, daily recognizing, Lord, your presence in our lives and your goodness toward us. Oh, Lord, thank you that you're the one who satisfies the thirsty soul. Oh, how we thank you for that. And Lord, I would just pray today for any person here who's not really partaken of the bread from heaven. And it's it's clear because there's still that hunger. There's still that thirst. There's still that sense that there's gotta be something that I just haven't found yet. Lord, may they know that you are the answer to those longings. May they know, Lord, that the work of God is this one thing to believe in you, the one that the Father sent. In Jesus' name, amen.